are listening to the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. In this episode, I chat with veteran stage and screen actor Lee Ehrenberg about Pirates of the Caribbean, Pintel, filming abroad, character acting, Once Upon a Time, Seinfeld, the ancient history of acting, and much more. And also, if you feel so inclined, wherever you're listening to this, please leave us a review. Helps on the algorithm and such. Also, you can find us on pretty much every social media platform, YouTube, TikTok, and all that stuff. Just search Monsters Madness and Magic. If you prefer to listen on YouTube, I do upload full audio versions of the episode, and I also post a few video clips, if that's something you're into. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. The king and his men stole the queen from her bed Boils and ghouls, this is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Why don't you just take us back in time to when you were a youngster? Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? All of the above. Shit, I read everything, man. I was into nonfiction when I was a kid a lot. And then when I discovered plays, obviously I started getting into reading a lot of, I read a lot of plays, you know? So from about 11, 12, I was always doing plays. So it was a form of like literature that I focused on was like really theater, like reading plays, scripts. My mom is a librarian, so I have a connection. Oh. To, so I worked in a library. I paged in a library. That's yeah. always been a dream job of mine. If that sounds lame, I'm sorry, but I've always wanted to work in a library, be a librarian. It just seems very Dude, cool. It's, it's a killer job. Are you kidding me? It's underrated in our society for how important it does. And there's a social impact, too, to the library, but I'm huge into it. Librarians need, should be paid like movie stars. So were your parents into the arts at all? Were you kind of pushed in that direction or was it kind of a natural flow? My parents were not in the business. 
but encouraged my, me and my brother and sister to, to do whatever, find our own way. Never, never discourage my acting. Cause I, you know, I was always pretty good at acting. You know, I think that gave me a chance. I was plucky when I was young and playing the lead roles when I'm like 13, Sherlock Holmes with glasses and a fro. But yeah, my parents were real supportive. You need that. You need a support unit to make it in the arts. So like the finals hurdles into becoming a professional that they couldn't help me there at all, ever for anything. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kids that grow up with directors or producer parents or whatever. At least they, they might get a door crack. Nobody really gets favors, especially like movies. They'll find you out on the TV. The ones with real talent make it. But you said you were in Sherlock Holmes at 13. When did you start taking it serious and think maybe, man, there's something here? After college, turning pro was when I, by the time I turned pro, I was doing theater though, right? So I started a theater company with, I did a lot starting in my junior high, which we had back then, 789. So that's your 13 year old Sherlock Holmes under the Baskervilles. I take it by the timber of your accent, Sir Henry, that you've been, spent some time in America. I, I remember that line, you know what I mean? It made an impact. And then at UCLA and Santa Monica High was next and then at UCLA when I started an actor's gang with my buddies, like a theater company where we went out and did it and entertained people. And that's kind of where I, you know, it's always the relationship to the audience where the actor knows if he's got it or not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Was that feedback, <laughs> instant action. feedback? Yeah. It's an art form that's a one-on-one -on -one without the audience. The dude's not really doing it to my mind. You need to be performing it. It's a performance art. Yeah, it was great to get the early feedback. So pretty much, yeah, from for sure. I mean, it was actually age 11 where I, uh, you know, got my first real taste. And from then on, from 11 on, that's all I really wanted to do. <laughs> that's awesome. Like just having that clarity from an early age, I would have killed for that. You know, just knowing at 11, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, you, you're going to lose it at some point. You get older and you're like, what the fuck am I still doing? <laughs> this game, it's a hard game, you know. So, I mean, the theater, doing the movies and the television was really exciting and super, you know, but I, but the theater energy for 20 years up until Pirates, that was really what kept me getting to a part like Pirates, right? Right. Well, did you go to high school with uh, Emilio and Sean Penn and do the whole writing thing there? Or was that college? I'm conf I was, I was high school. So you basically had a Ridgemont High high school experience. A real 100%. Life. I know we were Ridgemont. Wow. We were. I mean, the Cameron Crow. I guess it was a Cameron Crow story originally. Mm -hmm. But yeah, <laughs> class of 1980 in a school where you had the, all the Malibu kids. That's the Emilio Sean Penn. I'm like from Santa Monica, which wasn't the rich Santa Monica. It was just a working class kind of town back then. And then there were the kids from the South Side, you know. So we had, and it was like all. It was like Star Trek. <laughs> you know, like I mean, it was great. That's where the experience. So your parties would be with the jocks, the surfer kids, the, the art crowd. Downey was like there at that time, a couple years younger. Yeah, Sean and Emilio, so many. Holly Robinson. I mean, Santa Rob Lowe. You know, Jeez, you Santa just keep Monica going. High, bro. <laughs> but like I said, I didn't have any family in the business. So my, my family really was the theater because I wouldn't have mm -hmm. any chance. Tim Robbins and John Cusack gave me, helped me get my first a movie part in one of their movies, right? So Tim Robbins was going to school there too? At UCLA. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Right, so I graduate the high school. I work with Emilio and uh, Emilio was my buddy. He was in my class. He wasn't even an actor when I met him, right? 
he was uh, on the track team with my brother, and I sort of was the actor guy. Like when I was into when Quadrophenia was a thing, I used to go around with the trench coats and the <laughs> stock suits. I was like a student politician. It's crazy. <laughs> but Emilio and I met, and then in in a, we had a free period, and we used to do like readings together, like cold readings. Like he was on, way more on track to be a real actor because you know he had the real connection. I was like so close i could taste it mm -hmm. but i didn't have a way in right so but i was going to college anyway yeah those were good days dude do you got do you uh <laughs> talk to him anymore you guys in, in time i haven't seen him in a while but we got like a reunion coming up i wouldn't be surprised i mean social media i just said happy birthday we're all turning 60 this year you know so right right that kind of thing i did see him i ran into him a few years ago in uh, emilio in uh, taos new mexico one christmas and I'm walking in front, my kid's in a stroller. So it was probably 10 years ago or so, but from behind me, I go, he goes, I'd know that voice anywhere. Fucking Amelia. <laughs> <laughs> New Mexico too, that's Billy the Kid country. That's his town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's right there, bud. I mean, like he's got, I think he has a place out there. Wow. Maybe not in, uh, not in Taos, but somewhere between closer to Santa Fe, maybe. So that play that you all, you guys all did together, you, Emilio and Sean, do you remember much about the details, like what it was about? Yeah, of course. I wrote it with uh, Emilio. It's called the Echoes of an Era. We were always looking for a show to do together. Like there weren't these two, that many two-handed like men's shows for us. So there was this one we were trying to do called Daddies that some guy wrote in the 70s. Uh, we never got that up there, but we wrote, when Martin did like Apocalypse Now, it changed everything, right? Everyone was so into it. Like to be an actor, you had to go to Nam in some way, you know? Yeah. And uh, so the play Echoes of an Era was, I played a uh, recruiting sergeant and he played a, uh, he was like a, a vet maybe or something, wounded vet. Somehow we had like interviews with some guy. I mean, it was, <laughs> but Sean directed it. And then we did it at the high school, like, I think one day for like six performances and all classes came, a bunch of classes. I had, we went to a cool school, even though it was a public school. I mean, we had a lot of opportunities, you know, echoes right. of an era. It's <laughs> so obviously, man, you love stage. Did you ever think about or attempt to pursue Broadway? Was that ever a dream of yours? I was working with, I wanted to be in movies and TV. I never really, I was good at the theater. But like I was always like, I want to be in movies, you know? Right. I wanted that. I was just always, TV always was my like dream in movies, even back then when it wasn't quite cool. Because I was like a TV junkie, right? I liked all the shows, like mm -hmm. the old cop shows of the 70s. and Because in the theater, right, it's hard to, I mean, I would love to do Broadway. You'd have to go to New York. I mean, I was doing great theater in LA. You look it up called Actors Gang. That's the group that we started at UCLA. That's where Jack Black and Tenacious D came out. We knew Jack when he was 12. I mean, Cage was my old roommate. That was an amazing time at freaking UCLA in the 80s, dude. So many people. That's the, talking about Emilio, that's the Repo Man era. Mm -hmm. So when out of the film schools, Alex Cox, when we were there, and Catherine Hardwick, I met Catherine Hardwick, who went on to do production design for the theater and then, of course, got into directing and did so many great movies. But back when she was a designer, when she was a director back then, film, uh, grad student, she saw me smoking a cigarette at UCLA on the like uh, the benches. We had this the theater department was in this sculpture garden. So it was great with these Rodin sculptures and these big jacarandas and these cool benches. And we're all trying to be too cool 
at like 18, 19, smoking Marlboro Lights or whatever. Catherine Hardwick's like, you look cool. She takes a picture and like I'm in a move, her first movie, right? And uh, Road Girls. Well, this was for Puppy Does the Gumbo, this first movie. I mean, this is what I'm talking about, dude. I walked into it at the right time yeah. with a look and that I was connected to the theater. The gang went all over the world still doing it 40 years later. How did that very first transition from the stage to the screen happen for you? Tim, I mean, uh, Tim and John, well, all right, so the theater starts in 1981 at, at UCLA. By the time 1985 rolls around, Tim's our artistic director. We've studied like French Commedia dell'arte and all whiteface. Like we're really doing cool shit. Our first show was a hit in 81. And then we did a couple of ones that didn't connect. And now in 85, we do another hit show that by then Tim's a movie star. So he brings down young John Cusack, who he was working with on The Sure Thing. To, we had our own theater space. We used to like work every night or a lot of the nights of the week in this downtown LA loft space called the Actory. It was rad, dude. In Whiteface, we would we were allowed four emotions, happy, sad, angry, and afraid. And uh, you had to be totally committed. It was punk rock shit, dude. Real punk shit. Just to match the energy of like what was going on in the early 80s, right? Dude, good, good memories. But that's kind of the way what happened. So John comes down one day in 85 and we start jamming together and he wants to be in the show. Jeremy Piven, David DeVincentis, Steve Pink. A lot of cool people came in. The Chicago people were killer people. All these, the people that worked with... Uh, Jeremy's mom and dad or mom at her mom's theater and all the Evanston Chicago people that I hooked up. So Q's becomes my buddy too. So I got Tim and John, we're just doing all kinds of crazy shit. And they get this movie called Tape Heads. They're gonna do together. And there was a role in there basically. They convinced the producer to give me what was then called Taft Hartley, pay the 500 bucks so I'm eligible to join the union. And that was my first one. And then I got like, well, Tim had already hooked me up with an agent too. So I had my first agent just before that. And my first job was on the stage. Actually, my first union card was professional. Dude, I haven't, this is a good interview because I haven't even <laughs> thought of all this shit in a long time. I see that you were cast in film before TV. Is that is that usually the case? Uh, is that rare? It seems to me like it worked the other way around from the outside looking in. Gotta remember back then it was like, I mean, maybe it was, I don't know. I never, I don't know. I think there was a lot of luck. Cause I did the tape heads, cross my heart and the one called the underachievers, depending on, I don't know, it could be, it was night school. It's like a Vestron movie where I was the bad guy with Eddie Albert Jr. God rest his soul. And like, he was a cool cat, Barbara Carrera and Garrett Morris. And oh, dude, it was a good one. So I got three movies right away. And then the first TV was like the next year, Perfect Strangers. So what are some of the differences that you have to deal with as an actor dealing with a TV role versus a film role? I mean, I guess the main, not really much of a difference anymore with single camera TV. I guess the only thing would be the, you know, the live or a three camera show shoots, but you, you still keep it real and play like there's a fourth wall there. You don't break the fourth wall in, in a sitcom. The acting's basically always the same, maybe a little broader in the sitcom where you're responsible for nailing the jokes. Anything good, you're just trying to find moments, connect with what's going on around you and try and you have to remember so much technical stuff 
because there's cameras all over your mic you're in an, usually in an uncomfortable costume you know what i mean Right. Or you have to do something physical that requires timing and funniness. And it's a weird gig, dude. It's a weird gig. So you may, you've appeared in some of my favorite stuff of the 90s. Just uh, scrolling through the list here, I see. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear it. Uh, what, what was your experience like on The Next Generation? I'm a huge you know, Star Trek nut. Had Jonathan Frakes on here a couple months ago. What, did you work with him at all on any of your episodes? Uh, I was on the holodeck. I mean, I was Picard's, you know, nemesis in the in when I was Damon Bach. So I got to go toe to toe. But I played, I want to say, is it two other Ferengis? I did on. I get lost in all the because I, I was lucky they brought me back the Junie Lowry like to play through the makeup to play the aliens, and you had to be a certain size. I got a couple bites of the apple on that one. <laughs> And played a couple different characters but oh my god next gen was killer i mean the, i want to say the best thing about it for the guest star probably the young actor like me was it paid good because of all the makeup time in the chair because i know uh, armin shimmerman had to go through an ass ton of makeup for his roles oh my god yeah that makeup sucks and if you're one of the stars armin's one of the great dudes ever you know, he was so cool to me, but that was Deep Space that I was like with him, right? But I had a chunky monologue in the Grand Nagus episode, and uh, he was like, dude, let's run it as many times as you need. Real actory cool thing to do. You know, the hardest thing in this business is being a guest star. I've heard that from several folks because, you know, the, everyone else has their role going and they've done it for years and you're just kind of the new guy. A lot of it's the relationship with the crew and just the energy, right? Like you want to like, as anytime you work, you want to connect to the crew. They're the fun, most fun people usually on the shows a lot of the time, right? So that's the hardest thing. You're deprived of that. Everyone knows, has really these relationships and you're coming in. As my career progressed, you know, they would know me from other things or I'd work with them and that made all the difference. Right. But yeah, it's being a guest star is tough. But the, the Star Trek shows were very cool to their guest stars. I, I had a great time in all the universes with all the all of them. I love, that was one of the best jobs of my career and that it's been one of my best jobs since it's passed because of the great fans. Those are collectors. I mean, for us, we like to sell our pictures and tell our stories and feel like value part of that world and frickin You'll get that from Star Trek all day long. (laughs) Dude, they're the number one. Yeah, number one for sure. I'll agree with that. Well, they really are because, I mean, I think there's other things that tie it as a number one, but I mean number one as they were the first fandom. It's been around for 50 years, 60 years or something like that, right? Longer. 70, yeah. I don't know when they they got it together to do the original woman that she tried to bring it back and then started the first conventions based on her name and she's super famous all due respect to star trek there they they created all the convention world and all that stuff now i'll probably get crucified by our listening audience for not remember the specific episode of tales from the crypt you were on so maybe you can help me refresh my memory oh for crying out loud yeah um i kill katie seagal let me click on that she's my accountant i'm a scheming nightclub owner marty slash I know exactly the one Bob, without looking now. That, yep. Sam Kinison's my conscience. Basically, it opens up me in the doctor's office going, I can't. I'm hearing this voice in my ear. It's a ringing. The doctor's like, oh, it's just the rock and roll. Maybe turn down the music, Marty. Oh, killer. That was that was like that was a good one. Too. It's the only time the only time I've ever been like a number one on the call sheet. Really? Yeah. Only the only time in my whole career. 
So that was a good one for me. I like that it's the people liked it. No, no, those... a lot of times it's about getting trusted with the ball, bro. It's just like you want to get the ball. That's the thing. Like I don't get trusted. I don't get given the ball that much. So you got to take advantage of it when you do. It's that everyone, even the people you think are like, everyone's waiting for the phone to ring in Hollywood, baby. <laughs> <laughs> did you? I know they shot those scenes separately, but did you see John Cassier or interact him with him at all on that? Do you know that I want to say, I like to say I know John because we have definitely interacted. I want to say, I don't know if I met him on the set though, but I met him again. You got to imagine this was like the young Hollywood, that scene in Hollywood around then, like late 80s, 90s, early 90s. All the auditions you'd see everyone like Hollywood, like you'd go to one thing, you'd see like you'd run into John Kassir, you'd run into... Right. Everyone that was on the hustle, because we all were like hustling to get commercials and whatever we could. They'd have these, you go to Warner Brothers for a TV thing and they'd have all the Warner Brothers shows casting the same day. Mm -hmm. So you go in the waiting room back then and there'd be like 25 actors you knew. It was cool. But John's amazing, right? I love Love him. Had him on here as well. He actually voices our intro for the show. While he was on here, he did his one-man show, Wizard of Oz, and went through all the voices and everything, and it's one of the most hilarious things you'll ever see. See that? You think, <laughs> I'm not that fucking talented. <laughs> did you know he won Star Search with that? He was on Star Search and won the, won the uh, big shebang with his one-man Wizard of Oz performance. Dude, I always remember Jeremy Renner coming on that MTV acting show. Yeah, I think he won that thing. So people made a career. <laughs> but Kassir is otherworldly. He's like one of those. I mean, he's super talented. I looked at who you had on your show. Mm-hmm. I saw Frey. But you've talked to a lot of people that I know and respect big time. Hey, like, uh, you're legit, bro. You, I mean, I was like, I was impressed. Like, you got some good, you've landed some good conversations. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I don't know why people say yes. They just do. And I talk. Talking about and asking questions like, or even talking about, are you a book reader or a you know, guy? That's I like it. It opens up interesting conversation. Right. Then I try to keep it interesting. You know, I know you guys talk to a lot of folks, get asked the same questions. And inevitably, I'm going to ask some of them, but we just try to keep it to a minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like it. All right. So we're sticking with the 90s here. We're still there. Seinfeld, you were on very early and then you were... I think you came back later as the same role. What was the differences in the show? I was on there season three when it was right when it became a hit. It had become mm-hmm. a hit right by the time. I mean, I didn't make it a hit, obviously, but I think it was that season that really the end of season by season two, it was water cooler show. And then by season three, it was like a 40 million, like a must see Thursday, big experience, right? You had to watch it to have the conversation, right? And by season eight, it was a juggernaut thing yeah but even bigger <laughs> but i think by and see by season eight i think then jerry was running it with you know uh shapiro you know and moss larry david was gone jerry was like the number one guy i love that show are you kidding me yeah i could fall asleep <laughs> watching seinfeld every night i pretty much did for years I'm a fan. yeah it's, it's a brilliant it's one of those it still gets you you know it still can make you cringe it was just brilliant those guys are the coolest did you hang out with them at all after after shooting or anything no, like that? No, but I would run in. I've run into uh, Jason a few times over the years. Always, the dude's the coolest guy. Love that guy. Always will like give you a what up from across the crowded room, and uh, you know he's legit. 
but I haven't seen the others, you know, like since. So, but I was honored to be on that one. <laughs> that was a good one. I held my own too, man. You I hit, love that. Yeah, you've hit some big shows, man. Like just like your resume in the '90s is pretty insane, just in terms of the level of shows you've hit. Yeah. Roseanne. <laughs> yeah, oh God. <laughs> Roseanne. Although I was like on one of Roseanne's Halloween shows, so I was uh, the ghost of Halloween. I was in a sheet, but I remember holding her hand and. Oh, God, Rosie. That was a good one, dude. <laughs> I know that she was, was probably wild back then, too. I did the Tom Arnold, too, show. I did a thing with Tom after I was on the Rosie show. I played a newsstand guy on his little HBO thing. I got a lot of... I'm a character actor, bro. I, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm a newsstand guy. I'm a... The real thing is the gruff guy with the heart of gold that, like, you know, and half a brain, usually. <laughs> Well, it depends, because, like, you know, the good stuff, the, the 90s, well, keep going, dude. You're you're crushing it. I want to hear what else you liked in the 90s, because I hadn't thought about Rosie in a while and Tom, and I was yeah. in a fucking sheet. I got pissed at that. That show was the last time I ever told anyone I was on TV. Really? Well, because I remember they digitally altered my voice. So when you watch it, I, you don't even know it's me giving the performance. Wow. And for an actor that, you know... I was in a fucking sheet. So I really wasn't going to, I should have never taken the part. Right. I wanted to be on Roseanne and play this character. So then things like changed my voice. I was like, what? Uh. Did you know that they were going to do that going into it? No, I didn't. I didn't know till I watched it and had to deal with, oh, was that you? Is that you on the thing? I go, that's the last fucking time I tell you. Damn. It hurt my, it hurt my feelings, bro. Cause I didn't know. I had a bunch of shit cut out of water world too. Right? Like, Oh, that's where I was going next. All right. I felt it. And, uh, <laughs> and I didn't find out on that till the screening, the cast and crew, they cut my part. They didn't cut all of it, though, did they? No, no, no. I, I'm in there, but I lost scenes and shit with Hopper and all this shit. Another one I wanted to hit, I didn't know, Warriors of Virtue. Oh, my God, dude. Beijing, living in Beijing, making a movie with a, with a Chinese crew. I'm blessed, dude. Dude, you are really pumping me up right now. <laughs> hey, these are I'm fans of all these things. I didn't I didn't look at this whole entire list before we started. No talking, one's so ever be... figured this shit out, bro. <laughs> no one ever connects the dots in a character actor's deal. That's the thing. The moment the dots get connected, it's really cool because yeah. more is a virtue. Yeah, man. We yep. shot that in Beijing. Although Ronnie Ronnie came to uh, Burbank and had my audition in Burbank, and I just kind of walked in there, and he's like, "Hey, do you want to be? You want to go to China?" And I'm like, "Yeah, all right." It was kind of scary back then, dude. <laughs> I'm googling your character just to see what you look like in that movie, so I can remember. Yeah, it was a shaved head goatee. I had a lot of shaved head goatee. Yep, I remember it. Yep, jeez. I like to think that I was one of the that I kind of made it cool for everyone to shave their head too. By the way. Because I first started shaving my head. Well, the first time I did it was college uh, for The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, this cool Bertolt Brecht play. Then I started doing it for pretty much good around 1988, summer of 88, mm -hmm. for this part I did in Chicago with Cusack and those and the new, his theater company there for a while. Yeah. So for all these years, I got the shaved head, kind of the goatee. And I'm mm -hmm. not the bike. I played some bikers, like comedy bikers, like on Step by Step and all that. Mantos in Warriors of Virtue. I'm a lot of frickin' frack bad guy roles. Yeah. I'm like, it set up the double act I did in Pirates. I've been part of a lot of double acts. Warriors of Virtue was a double act. I did another one in V.I. Warshawski, The Big Little. 
a bunch of big littles, you know. I was half watching the Warriors of Virtue uh, trailer off to the side because I think I remember you from the trailer, but I couldn't remember exactly. I don't know that I was in the trailer. Being in the trailer was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Or a trailer, a chunk of the trailer. Because I do remember that character very vividly now that I've uh, refreshed my memory. Yeah. You probably know it better than me. I haven't seen it in a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I can remember being in China uh, way way before anything like 95 maybe that year was it 95 when did it come out 96 96 that's what it says here oh 95 97 sorry yeah 97 that's when it says the release was okay so maybe it was 96 then that I was there but changed my life forever as a traveler as an actor living for three months or more in Beijing was it a culture yeah. shock when you first got there to adjust? Yeah, <laughs> it was trippy, dude. I mean, the hotel was owned by the army. It was pretty, yeah, the whole thing, man. It was it was a culture shock for sure. Did you have any sort of maybe sideways interactions that made you worry at all? No, because the first guy I met, this hotel had like seven restaurants and like two nightclubs. It was a big hotel. First night, I make some friends on the movie, and then we're just kind of wandering, like looking around what to do in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And we see this black kid in a all white suit. And he lights up the biggest, fattest fucking joint, and he goes, <laughs> he lights it, and he hands it right to me. And I, but I was like, I'm not touching that fucking shit. He goes, Relax, man. This is the Jangleman way. My dad's the ambassador from Uganda. And I was like, What? And then he's like, Yeah, you're in this area where anything fucking goes. As long as you don't go into the city, because the foreigners, they go, everyone's watching you and they don't care, basically. It wasn't decriminalized, they just everyone was an ambassador. Yeah, or right. First yeah. bits of business. You got to remember that Tiananmen was just a few years before. So yeah. you, that went just down the street from this hotel. Okay, so this is the area we're talking about the Silk Market, where all the Embassy Row, the Django Minway area. I mean, there was a TGI Fridays there. But not a lot of capitalist infrastructure in, in communist China. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. And then Deng Xiaoping, who was the leader, he created these economic free zones where you could do commerce because he knew that they had to get the economy going like it is now. So this right. was the roots of that. But, oh, shit, dude. I remember they would have all these really cool like food sellers on the street in front of the hotel. And... One time, I think it was Boris Yeltsin was the leader at the time. I remember the cops coming through and because our windows looked out over it, wipe, clearing them all out so that Boris Yeltsin didn't see any of that on the road to the Tiananmen. But so I you're you're in the thick of it, like history yeah, it was right incredible. there. incredible. It was beautiful. It was amazing going to the Great Wall, hiking up to see that thing before it was all touristed out. Because you got to do, that's the best part of like when you, the movies and now TV is going to these locations. Right, seeing the world, getting, yeah, and tell stories and be a be a you know good representative of Hollywood and the you know this is a what we do as actors is arguably it was choral stuff, but Thespis was probably like twenty six hundred years ago. The first guy that ever stepped out and did lines solo. It's an ancient art form, the storytelling. You can feel like that when you're on these movies and you're on a big show and you're all over the world. I mean, that's what I would choose to connect with to, I don't know, just there's a bigger energy out there, right, in the in the, in the the arts. It's universal, yeah, and it's kind of why we all cling to it or where most people enjoy a good movie or a good TV show. Really, the movies have only been around for a hundred and maybe 40 years, maybe mm-hmm. their first stuff, right? So it's all powerful, the church of the cinema. 
in a whole other theatrical way. Because you got to think before the before the rise of the churches, right? The which was time of Jesus. So that's two thousand one hundred and or whatever year we're in now. Right. Twenty twenty two. Right. So a couple thousand years ago, the the churches started, and they were telling their they had their stories, and for two thousand years, it was no actors and dogs allowed. We weren't allowed the sacred experience. Before that, it was sacred to society. Actors were. Then suddenly we were only left with the profane. Into the Renaissance era, in the Dark Ages, there was medieval plays. Actors could go around and tell stories, Bible stories, medieval plays of heroes. But yeah, when the movies came back, that was kind of the revenge of the the actor in a weird way. I like that you think about it like this. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but this is sort of how I feel that it needs to be approach if that makes sense or that how i would approach it if i were an actor yeah because it's it is like you say it's ancient i'm tap i'm trying to tap into on the best days like every good performance there ever was as if they're all out there you're throwing that out there the audience tells you whether it's art we just give the performance the movie camera you have to do it's more internalized the theater you're doing this performance for the back people in the back row in the cheap seats need to hear what you're saying because they really want to be there. They're all the way in the back. So while we're on this subject, what is your personal best theatrical experience? Do you remember like being a kid and seeing King Lear or something and your eyes lighting up or I have this. No, I I was always a doer more than I was always in a show from when I was like, I was always in the show meeting Sir Lawrence Olivier was probably my biggest young actor boner. He was my friend's dad, Richard Olivier. Shit. Was a cl- classmate at UCLA and one of the founders of the gang with me, the theater group with Tim, because we were all classmates doing theater. So Richard was a young director, and I was an, an actor, obviously, and he directed me in a show called Next Time I'll Sing to You. And it was allowed one performance because he was like a he might have been a sophomore at that time, maybe still a freshman. I think sophomore. Right. And um, his dad came. So the man. Had, <laughs> yeah. So that moment, performing for Lawrence Olivier and the classmates, because I was young. I'd already been in some shows in college right away. That was the meeting him, right? So we're in the Westwood Marquis Hotel in Westwood Village after the show. So we're at UCLA. Now we've gone to the hotel bar restaurant. Sir Lawrence, so nice to meet you. Call me Larry. Oh, Sir Lawrence. <laughs> That's Larry, dear boy. All right, Larry, whatever, right? Fucking it was Larry. Just he was the cool, like your cool grandpa. The waitress comes over. Drinking age is 21 in California, and I'm maybe I'm 19 now. I'm probably still 18. What do you guys want to drink? I'd love a gin and tonic, please. The waitress is just about to card me when Larry goes, gin and tonic. What a marvelous way to start the afternoon. He mysticized the whole shit. Do you understand? Yeah. He was the most down-to-earth, funny, profane, and sacred in the same moment. You were hanging on every, every, every one of his swear words, you know? Wow. Every story that he would share. He told us in that lunch about short versions of Shakespeare for when the night show after the matinee, when they were too drunk to, like, go on. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Either are great. His Hamlet, to be or not to be. Ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> Then we had another one like for 
Othello, like she drops the handkerchief and no one sees it and curtain. There's Sir Lawrence Olivier being just Larry Oliver, if you will. And then I was like, and I already knew that about Martin Sheen and about the people from, you know, but I thought, but as a theater dude, then I was like, he's Olivier's on this other level, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't. And that's when I realized, man, we're all the same. That's a great, great experience. The superstar, like the regular person and try and treat your, the regular, the housekeeper, the librarian, like the superstar, and you'll get a lot farther. Mm. The person you got on the phone when you need customer service. So, Lee, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Pirates of the Caribbean. How did you approach that character in your audition, fresh off the page going in? You know what? I'll be honest. We, the, I connected right away with Ello Poppet. Did people scream that at you in the streets, by the way? All of it. <laughs> all the above. Gladly. Gladly. Yeah, it was a, that was a good one, man. They couldn't... I, I mean, it was a miracle shot because they auditioned everyone in London. And somehow they cast Mackenzie, but they didn't have a Pintel. So they came here and I got on the list and uh, had an audition for the casting director. And it was weird because I, I just felt like, felt good, you know, but then I didn't know. Mm-hmm. You never know what's going to happen. Then I get a call into Gore, to do it again with Gore. I remember getting there real fucking early. It was at Disney and, for, and, and normally not that person, but I was like 30 minutes, 40 minutes early. Maybe they started late. But I was sitting there, they offered me food, and I made the mistake of thinking I was the only person still in the thing. <laughs> and then it got closer to six and like four or five other dudes came. But I was first on the list, so I went in first. And somehow I won the fucking part in my audition, you know? Sitting on this little couch, kind of like how this distance, and then Gore had this little camera, casting director reading. And, it, and I got the part, not on the Ello Poppet, but when she says parlay, and my Pintel just goes like, what? It's apparently the way I said what, dumb with no brain. Like, what the fuck? How do you know that? But also the character thinks, how could you possibly know that? To call parlay. That was when he took a fucking Polaroid of me. And fucking by the time I walked out, he'd stuck me on the freaking wall. I mean, obviously they did love what you did. They brought you back for two more films after that. All the way to Dead yeah. Man's Chest, I think. Yeah. And I think we would have been in all of them if it had worked out, to be honest with you. What you know? what happened there in terms no, of... Oh, man, people had different stuff going on, you know, whatever. We weren't maybe as much valuable to them mm. that they really wanted us in the, you know, you know, in that fourth one. And then I got was in Once Upon a Time by one, and Mackenzie had a show going. And, oh, my God, dude, the most magical, amazing... I practice gratitude. I try to practice it every day. But I really became aware of it when I got Pirates in terms of relation to the how because I was kind of like on a downer then oh. that was the 2000s the millennium so I wasn't getting this I mean I did action do you remember action oh Not my top god of my head. one of my best roles ever is it a movie it was a tv series on fox and it was with buddy hackett jay moore was the star it was like behind the scenes in hollywood i played like this uh velvet mafia guy always i did first full male frontal nudity on tv it was hilarious dark if we were on cable we'd still be on kind of in a in its look behind hollywood and what it's, years was, was this it was fox 2000 okay i'm definitely gonna check that out yeah 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 get on that one Speaking of uh, synchronicity here, you just mentioned it. Uh, a few weeks ago, I spoke with your friend and coworker Raphael Sparge, oh Jiminy Cricket, <laughs> and uh, he pointed to uh, the Once Upon a Time writers, one of their hallmarks, and the direction they gave him with his character was keeping it real. Was that basically what you were told? 
I was actually never told that, but that was the key to it. A director, David Solomon, was doing a lot of flights back and forth LA to Vancouver. Because when if I was in, I was up there. And if I wasn't, I was home, basically. And I ran into him at the airport early on season in the... We were probably were still shooting season one, but it was on the air and had, be, had become a hit right away. And he says to me, he goes like, I don't know how you do it. Meaning Ginny, jo- well, Ginny, J-Mo, Lana, Bobby, right? In the early part of the show, Joshy, all the, all the stars of the show. How do you say those fucking corny lines like that and land them, you know, kind of thing. And it's like, it's the honesty of the writing. At the end of the day, the truth is what you need, you know? To, to make it work and uh that was so fun dude i've been like i was talking to Raphael. that's one of the last communal get the uh, gather around the fire get the family together and let's watch a tv show shows that i can remember well it, it's got some for everybody a lot it was on the walt you know it was in the wonderful world of disney time slot so yeah i mean what a what a show though man what a what a phenomenon i mean both pirates and once you know huge that connection to those with that disney fan base connecting to and then obviously the meteoric rise of some of these characters jack sparrow lana's evil queen best acting advice you've received in your career do you remember who gave it to you i've gotten some good stuff don't always know who where i got this one from though because the real important thing to always remember is like you know that the pay you for the waiting around and the acting you should always do for free I mean, I come from like, there's no small parts, only small actors kind of school. It's like mm. some of that early, that was early theater stuff. Really stay humble. We're in the business of connecting. Don't take yourself too seriously. Always take the work more seriously. Those were the most fun sets. Those were the shows that were hits where everyone was working hard. The crew works 10 times, million times harder than the actors, you know? <laughs> but trust me, it's not easy to execute under that fucking pressure. But I think I think the best advice that I got is always just to remember how you know lucky you are to be there. There'd be a million people wanting to get in your shoes. It's your job though to bring it. Be dynamic, be bold every time they roll action. When the director, you know, you can always give it a different way, give them a bunch of colors and make it hard for the editor to figure out which one to use. What's the most challenging role you've ever had? Is there one that maybe had you pull your hair out, you lost any sleep over? There's always stuff within the everything. For the most part, no. If you do your homework and you're prepared, it's hard enough getting the job. I usually would say the next job, the one you haven't got, is always the hardest job in acting. Waiting for the next opportunity, not knowing if it'll come or when it'll come right so that's always the actor's dilemma there's great coaches out there i get myself in a in a in a in a great opportunity i make sure to get my coach on the horn and and get count you know have someone work it with me so that you right. show up prepared i want to say one of the best pieces going back to your thing before I, I clicked in on one of the best acting advice things i ever heard was anthony hopkins say that he does his lines 200 times aloud in the hotel room before he goes to the set I don't know how he does 200. That's a lot. But it was the repetition that allows you to be able to play, putting in the work like you would in the theater. You know, when we were doing a play, we've done it so many times. You probably have done it a couple hundred by the time opening night hits. So there is something to be said about getting it into the DNA level. Yeah, making muscle memory, essentially. Correct. And that was, and, he, and I read that in the newspaper, a little independent newspaper where it said that 
Anthony Hopkins was teaching an acting class at a laundromat. He was staying in Santa Monica and there was like a dance studio and a little coffee place and this laundromat and some, I don't know what the, <laughs> what kind of the story, <laughs> I might've got that wrong. <laughs> so have you seen any movies that have moved you recently? You know, it's interesting because I gotta get that. I gotta get to the movies recently. I have watched a few movies lately. I'm trying to think what what have moved me. I mean, I watched The Wild Bunch. God, it's like a it's a Sam Peckinpah, just one of those. It's a revisionist western. First one to really kind of depict like the violence on a level more like what we got we saw in Saving Private Ryan. But it's just more the it's a changing of an age. The revisionist western is always set when like the times are changing, modern life's moving in, the mm-hmm. squeeze the cowboys. That was the last thing I saw that I had, hadn't watched maybe in, in so many years. And to watch like Ernest Borgnine and uh William Holden and these old movie stars. It always I'm always humbled by their, you know, the movie game. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. just before everything changed in the seventies. So these are still the sixties and they're totally different, you know. Right, right. I always enjoy going back and watch older stuff. My wife and I have been going back and rewatching the original Twilight Zone and that's something that my father and I I grew up watching Twilight Zone. Rod Serling can listen to him, his Ooh. monologues every night. I can remember I mean I never I don't think I watched the originals was too young but i grew up watching the reruns for sure mm-hmm. yeah i'm way too young for the originals i definitely watch yeah. the reruns <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah understand but i'm just saying i'm even because like i said i'll be 60 so they were on when i was alive but i was too probably too young mm-hmm. maybe caught the end of those but yeah by the end all the brilliant stuff great writing my my number some of the one, best in my opinion of course and that's this is the, the consistency here when you say pirates and when we say once like like Raphael said, the writing is the thing, especially in good television. Right. Seinfeld, because you need twenty three great scripts, right? A movie needs a great director, someone to marshal that energy like forward through post production, even after the excitement of the getting you know getting it all the way to the finish line. And then theater's the actor's medium because like when that curtain goes up, there's no one else out there. I mean, you're still doing a dance with your stage crew, your stage manager, the tech. So we each have our spot where we're kind of at the top, but TVI to me, and Shakespeare said the play is the thing. Good scripts make all the difference. Right. Agreed. So Lee, just to wrap up here, what's on the yeah, horizon buddy. for you? Uh, anything in the pipeline you can tell us about? Well, you know, I just did this fun movie in France, dude, with these young French filmmakers. It'll probably be on the festival circuit, but that was the last thing I did. It's called this Bloody Fury. These young French cats did a Western I think you got the voices of Kevin McNally and Bill Nye in there. And who else? I don't even know. Just reached out to me on Facebook, though. So wow. you, your dreams do come true, man. When That's I, crazy. He said, oh, I want you in this thing. I was like, oh, sure, right? And then he sent me his other films. I go, holy shit, dude. <laughs> it's so, legit. <laughs> well, it's t- he's, yeah, it happens that way sometimes, right? Right. So you have to stay open. Well said. And, you know, and, and, you know, as humble as possible. Agreed. Willie, yeah. it's been a pleasure talking to you, my friend. I'm going to cut you friend. loose. Thank you for giving me some of your time this evening. Really enjoyed it. Have a great night. All right. You too, man. All right. Thanks, Jess. Bye-bye. All now. right. See you, buddy. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. 
This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.